Welcome to the 2024 season of the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and first of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta Country. And we'd also like you to influence your local politicians to do more to mitigate climate change by moving from fossil fuels to renewable energy sources. We're now in our ninth year of production with over 180 fabulous interviews with top scientists from all over the world. Each month, we produce two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave gives us his monthly sky guide, plus a unique astrophotography challenge. Then, on the 15th of each month, we publish an interview with a leading astronomer, astrophysicist, space scientist, data scientist, telescope engineer, project manager, or particle physicist, and we discover their science journey and rare insights into how they think and conduct their amazing research into exactly how our universe works. Our audio files and transcripts are available on our website at astrophys.com and MP3s can be freely streamed from SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. But right now we're going to kick off the year by zooming over to Adelaide in South Australia to speak with Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brandon. Welcome to our eighth year of the Astrophys Sky Guides, and we're going to have another fabulous year. And today you're going to tell us about what's up in the sky in February. Go ahead, Ian. No worries. If you realise that this is a leap year, which occurs every fourth year, and our eighth anniversary means that we were started this on a leap year as well yeah on to what's up in the sky and as usual i'm going to start with the moon so the moon of course it's not only your guide to when you're going to see the best of the faint fuzzies but also a moving signpost to the bright planets so the last quarter moon is on the february the third the new moon is February the 10th. Again, this will be a really good time to look for faint fuzzies. Those of you who are still on holidays out camping, hopefully the rain has stopped so you can get to see some of them. February the 17th is the first quarter moon. And February the 24th is the full moon. Now, this is inverted commas at apogee moon. It's actually a bit over a day away from being apogee. And I'll tell you why this is important a bit later on. So, again, the moon is at perigee on February the 11th and apogee is on February the 26th, a bit far away from the full inverted commas mini moon. If you're looking out at the evening twilight, you will have been seeing Saturn sinking into the evening twilight. In fact, it's really hard to see without binoculars at the moment. And by mid-month, Saturn will be not visible anymore and it will enter the morning skies in late March. Yep. On the 11th, the thin crescent moon and Saturn will be very close to the twilight. They're going to be almost a hand span apart, that's five degrees. This, of course, will require binoculars to see Saturn 
and the thin crescent moon, and you also need a very level horizon to see this effectively, like the ocean or flat rolling plains of wheat or a desert. Yep. The other giant planet, Jupiter, which has been gracing our uh, evenings and dominating them for some uh, months now, Jupiter is beginning to lower in the northwestern sky. It's still a decent telescopic object in the early evening, but you do have to catch it relatively early. And on the 15th, Jupiter and the waxing crescent moon are near, that's four degrees apart, that's about four finger widths apart. Very easy to see at nautical twilight, an hour after sunset, and still nicely visible by the time the sky is fully dark. Yep. So that's the evening skies. Now, let's move to the morning skies. There's still some interesting things happening in the morning skies. Mercury, which was gracing our morning skies in January and giving us a very good view, begins to fall back towards the eastern horizon this month. And around about mid-month, it will vanish into the twilight. On the 9th, the thin crescent moon is less than 5 degrees from Mercury. That's about a hand span. However, you will need a level unobstructed horizon to see the pair at their best. And that's around 45 minutes before sunrise. You may need binoculars to see the pair clearly. If you are also looking at Mars, which is rising into the twilight, uh, Mercury is not far below Mars. Uh, in the first week of this month. Venus is still prominent in the morning sky this month at nautical twilight. And on the 8th, Venus will be just 5 degrees from the crescent moon, and that's almost a hand span. This is a very fine binocular sight. Venus itself in a small telescope looks like a gibbous moon. Venus also has a close encounter with Mars this month. Last month, Mercury and Mars were close as Mars rises up from the twilight and Mercury sinks. Mars is leaving Mercury behind and heading towards Venus. And from the 21st to the 24th, Mars and Venus will only be about a finger width apart. That's about one degree in the morning twilight. And then the pair are closest on the 23rd, where they're about 0.6 degrees apart. That's about the width of the full moon. And if you have a, a wide field telescope eyepiece, Venus and Mars will fit in quite nicely. Venus being gibbous and Mars being relatively small, they won't look absolutely fantastic, but you should be able to see the, the nice colour contrast between the bright white of Venus and the, uh, the ruddy orange of Mars. And both will be visible disks. Nice. So I've already covered Mars coming higher in the twilight, and it will continue to do so for the, the rest of the month. So we don't actually get an opposition of Mars this year. Mars comes to opposition in early January 2025, but we'll be able to see Mars get brighter and bigger for the rest of this year. Stars, the constellations of Orion and Taurus, are quite visible above the northwestern sky. Very easy to see. If you run, run your binoculars over Orion's belt, you'll see lots of nice nebulosities. The famous Orion Nebula 
It can be seen even in binoculars. Good. Pleiades are prominent above the northwestern horizon. I hope someone got to see the occultation of the Pleiades last month. I missed out. It was clouded out completely. This month, the moon brackets the Pleiades and doesn't come very close to them. But the other thing you can see is the southern Pleiades. If you're looking northwest, of course, Pleiades are quite prominent below the burden V of Taurus the bull. Quite easy to see. But if you move towards the south, around the southeast, the, the Southern Cross is now well visible above the horizon. If you look above the Southern Cross, you'll see another cross, the False Cross. That is also a fairly obvious asterism. And then roughly in between the Southern Cross and the False Cross is what looks to be a little fuzzy star. Roughly between the False Cross and the Southern Cross, round about the middle, you'll see a what looks to be a fuzzy star. This is Theta Carina. And if you've got good eyesight, you can see a, a, a rim of little stars around it. This is the Southern Pleiades. If you put your binoculars on the Southern Pleiades, you'll see an A-shaped framing of stars around that central bright star. If you sweep your binoculars about a, a binocular width to the east, you'll see a nebulosity even in suburban skies which represents the nebula around Eda Carina. Very good. So that, that will keep you happily going for a while. Uh, again, all around that area, if you're looking you know, with binoculars, you'll see lots of things between the Southern Cross, Canopus, and the bright star Sirius to keep you happily engaged with the binoculars. Now, I'll come back briefly to the Apogee Moon. Because the moon's orbit is elliptical, sometimes it's close to Earth. That's the perigee when it's closest to Earth. And sometimes it's far from Earth. That's apogee when it's furthest from Earth. Now, if you look at the moon, full uh, moons generally, they look all about the same size. But if you look at a perigee full moon, and if you've got very good memory of the Apogee full moon, you'll be able to remember that they're quite different in size. Most of us don't have that good of memory, so you can take uh, photographs of the Apogee moon at a reasonable magnification and then compare them with photographs of the Perigee moon at a reasonable magnification, the same magnification each time, and you'll be able to see the difference. So... This Apogee moon isn't really a good one. Next month is, is a much better one. But we're going to use the Apogee moon for an entirely different purpose, which I'll talk about in just a moment. Cool. Indeed, it's going to be a, a rather nice February. Excellent. Now, Ian, every month I really look forward to hearing Ian's tangent where you take us on a fantastic astronomical journey and give us some more insight into what astronomy means and what we can learn from it. But I believe that this year you're starting a new section as well called 
Ian's Astrophotography Challenge. Would you like us to just have an enjoyable listen now and then take us straight on through to Ian's Astrophotography Challenge? Well, uh, there's lots of tangents for this year, but the feed in the social media formerly known as Twitter is currently dominated by cute poop ads who seem to have displaced the chemtrailers from my uh, social media and flat earthers. The, the cute poop is a mildly puzzling Japanese phenomenon about a feces museum in Japan, while the latter appears to be dominated by people who have not progressed beyond a, a a pre-Babylonian view of the world, but who possess P1000 Nikon cameras and don't know how to focus. Now, both you and I have been long-time viewers of the skies and their wonders, and these folks give you the screaming irritant. But I want to use this as a chance for a teachable moment and to do something that anyone can undertake. Now, I don't know if anyone's familiar with the flat earth movement, but one of the tenets of the flat Earth movement is that the sun and the moon are both small and local. That sound you are hearing is the ghost of Aristarchus howling at the said lunar. Now, our friend Aristarchus used the time it took for the Earth's shadow to cross the moon in a lunar eclipse and got a figure uh, for the distance to the moon that was one third the modern distance. That's not bad for an unaided eye observation without modern clocks. And, of course, thousands of times further than the flat Earth requirement of local for the moon. They want a couple of hundred, or at least a, at least a, a thousand miles above Earth. And the moon, of course, is over a hundred thousand times that. Now, unfortunately, there's no convenient total lunar eclipses this year, so we can't reproduce Aristarchus's methods. But I'd like to use that as one of my photography challenges for next year. However, the most common method for determining the distance to the moon, if you're not bouncing lasers off the mirrors left by the Apollo astronauts or Soviets, and of course, unlike the cast of the Big Bang Theory, most of us don't have a large physics department with ginormous lasers and telescopes, so we can do bouncing lasers off, off uh, the mirrors left behind by the Apollo astronauts. So if you don't have that, and you don't have a convenient radar that you can use to bounce radar signals off the moon, the commonest method is parallax. Yep. Now, for parallax, you and a mate, uh, that mate has to be a couple of hundred kilometres away, have to take an image of the moon at the same universal time, close to one or more bright stars, with equipment that gives you an image of roughly the same scale. And you both need clear skies. Then all you have to do is measure the distance between the stars and the moon at, from both locations, do a bit of maths, and voila, you have the distance to the moon. Cool. Relatively simple if uh, you're able to divide by 10. So the next best time to do a parallax measurement is May the 23rd, when the moon is close to Delta Scorpio. And I'm thinking of doing a parallax challenge for Delta Scorpio in the May astrophotography challenge. But... The drawback, of course, is this all requires a bit of organisation, as unfortunate as most of the demonstrations of the sphericity of the Earth. Fortunately, there is a way to determine the distance to the moon that one can do just by themselves. So all you need is a digital camera with a decent optical zoom function or stick it on a telescope. 
an accurate timestamp function, a clear horizon, and the patients to take images for most of the night. Oh, you also need an image analysis program like Astro Image J to measure the moon's diameter. You can get Astro Image J by just simply searching on the name Astro Image J, or you can even just use the generalist version Image J. Both of these are free. I use Image J a lot for astronomy and for measuring my Western blots at work. So basic idea is really very simple. The moon at moon's rise is further away than the moon at the zenith, by approximately the radius of the Earth. So all you have to do is measure the radius of the moon as it rises and the radius when it's its highest, as well as an accurate measurement of the time that these moon images are taken. Apply a bit of maths with the radius of the moon and hey presto, the distance to the moon. Doesn't that sound simple? Yeah, it's never that simple. Okay, I'll have a look at Astro Image J. The reason it's not simple is that close to the, the horizon, atmospheric distortion squashes the image, messing with the accurate determination of the radius. Again, this is not the horizon illusion where the moon appears bigger to your unaided eye, when in fact it isn't. But this is a physical distortion of the moon by the atmosphere. So you have to take the image a, a, a bit above the where it's just rising, so the moon is image is more stable, and it also needs to be a full moon, relatively far from apogee or perigee. When during uh, perigee, for example, the moon is actually changing distance from you at, uh, at uh, a rate of knots, so you'll have the perigee change on top of the difference between the zenith and the rising size. Now, I mentioned that this month is an apogee moon, but the apogee uh, is separate, the, but the full moon's on the 24th, the apogee's on the 26th. So the actual change in diameter due to the orbit is relatively small. So be able to pick up the change in diameter due to the uh, difference between the see, seeing the moon with the full Earth's radius and the moon without full Earth's radius. That's fantastic, Ian. Mm -hmm. the, the thing with the, the, the time stamp is you have to convert the time into an hour angle, and this is where the maths get a bit tricky. So if you want to do this challenge, you need to look up the paper, The Simplest Method to Measure the Geocentric Lunar Distance, A Case of Citizen Science, and I'll provide links to all of that when uh, this Astrophys podcast goes out. And it, you can simply plot the size of the moon in however many pixels you've got from your camera against the time. And then you can use Excel to run a curve fitting program, which will uh, tell you the distance to the moon in terms of Earth's radii. And... There you are, the distance to the moon. It's relatively simple. So who's up for the challenge? As I said, compared to the parallax method, which Brendan and I are going to do on May the 23rd, this is a solo method which anyone can do. And I'd like to think that a few of you out there are up for the challenge and will let us know what your results are. Fantastic, Ian. Look. I'm happy to get on my learning curve for this one. 
no guarantees, but I'll I'll give it a good shot. Uh, we'll see how it goes, and um, it's always good to model a challenge. And um, I'm up for this one. Good on you. Yeah, I look. I got when I first read this paper, I got really really excited, and just for my own ability to do the parallax, to do the moon diameter, because I've tried to organise doing it by parallax beforehand. And usually what happens is that one of us is clouded out or something else has gone wrong. And so we don't manage to get a parallax measurement. So, but let's hope that for the May the 23rd, it's clear so we can do parallax. And let's hope that this February is clear because that way we can uh, do the lunar diameter challenge. And it's a challenge I'm looking forward to. Excellent. Well, I'm in. And... As I always say, if I can do it, anyone can do it. I'm sure that you have a lot more skills than that. But again, it, it, it's really quite simple. You just need a, a fairly clear horizon so you can take a good shot of the moon as it rises. Or if you're feeling like being a, um, a night owl, uh, a fairly clear horizon so you can take a good shot of the moon as it's set, just before it's setting. And also a shot at when it's at the zenith. And the stats people would like you to take a shot basically every hour after the hour between it's being the highest and being the lowest uh, so that you can do uh, lots of statistics with them. So, yeah, you just need to have a bit of patience. But of course, you do have to have patience. This is true for any astrophotography. You have to have patience because every time you try and do something, something will necessarily go wrong. Fantastic, Ian. I'm looking forward to learning some new skills here. What a great challenge to start off Ian's challenge, Ian's astrophotography challenge. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. A great start for 2024. Fantastic to have you again here. What a great year we're going to have, mate. Good on you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on, a pleasure always to guide people to the skies. And we've got lots of fun things happening this in the sky this year. So we've got upcoming uh, more occultations of the Pleiades, occultations of Saturn, occultations of Antares. Sorry, that's only us in the, nor in the northern skies. And almost opposition of Mars as well as oppositions of Saturn and Jupiter. So it's going to be a big fun year this year. Fantastic. Well, good night, Ian. Good night, Brendan. You have a, uh, a good night and uh, we will catch you during the month to organise our upcoming moon measurements and definitely by the end of this month for our next Sky Guide. Excellent. See ya. See you later, mate. All the best. And remember, Astrophys is free and unspeakable. Sponsored. But we always recommend that you check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astro Blogger website to find out what's up in the night sky. And in two weeks, we have a sensational interview for you from Denmark with Dr. Hannah Diamond Lowe, who uses the world's newest and most powerful instruments to probe the atmospheres of distant alien planets. You'll love her stories. See you in two weeks. Keep looking up. Radio Wave.